Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gagapod in conversation. Wonderful to have your company once again as we go through this isolation period together. But we do have some football to talk about, which is brilliant with the K League on off to sports starting last weekend. So we've got a special guest this week, Robbie Cordway, who knows all about the K League, and he's joining myself, David Weiner, and Michael Bridges for the next little while to get our football podcast fixed for the week. So let's get straight into it. Bridgie, I'll start with you as ever. Good to see you again on the, on the podcast, the podcast Zoom. Um, I saw you had to go into the office last week. I thought you and I were only ever going to see each other through uh, through the screens again. So that was that was good to see you getting out and about. I know, Dave. It was a it was an interesting journey. Normally, the two hour drive from Newcastle to Sydney it just became mundane. It was easy. I used to get in the car, put the podcast on, listen to all the stuff in the UK, get some info, and the journey flew by, mate. After not doing it for two months and driving down to do the K-League, which was fantastic, I was very excited about live football returning. My word, that journey was horrendous, man. <laughs> it was a tough, tough drive. But it was great to be back um, in the studio and talking about the game that we all love, mate. Even though I had to do a lot of research in the 48 hours that I was given notice about this, some of the names, I'm not even going to go there. And that's why we have the expert who's been there and played there to join us to explain a bit more about it. 100%. Well, yeah, good friend of Up to Sport, but great to have Robbie Cornthorpe on to talk about a league he knows very well and played uh, four years there. Robbie, welcome to the Gang of Pop for the first time. Great to see you. And more importantly, how are you? I'm well. Thank you very much, boys, for that uh, warm welcome. And as you say, it was good to see some football back on our screens over the weekend. And, and for me personally, a league that obviously I know quite well. I spent a lot of time playing there. I uh, know a lot of the players, and, and it's a league I keep an eye on anyway. Um, so to see that on the screens in Australia, that was fantastic. And, yeah, more of it uh, because I think the K-League has plenty to offer. And um, I think there's going to be some exciting football for, for football viewers to, to watch over the coming weeks. 100%. Now, before we jump into the K-League, we'll just touch on what's happening with the other um, competitions that we obviously are waiting to resume on off the sport and and from the Premier League, the Champions League and, and, and all those European competitions that are in a fairly precarious position as it stands. And overnight um, in the UK, and this week actually, it's a really big week of developments as the government in the UK announced that um, cultural events and, and congregations can start again from the 1st of June um, behind closed doors for the sake of sort of being broadcast. That gives the Premier League a little bit of time to try and scale up for their saying most optimistically, a June 8 or a June 12 resumption. But Bridgie, I mean, realistically, and we won't, we won't talk about this too long because things change all the time and I feel like we've been talking about this for two months. But do you think June 12 is something that is going to happen? What hurdles do you see realistically getting in the way for that to happen? Well, what, what I think about, we've been very lucky in Australia, Dave. I keep saying that our, our numbers, our ratios are very, very low in comparison to the rest of the world. And whether that is down to the government putting on restrictions and borders straight away and tighten it, or whether we have done the social distancing a lot better and taken a lot more notice, I don't know. Whether it's the hotter climate, who knows. But it's been very interesting and tough to speak to my mates back in the UK via WhatsApp and however we do with FaceTime and whatnot to tell them that I've been out playing golf and I'm going around on the golf course and they're not even allowed in their house and some of them are getting wrong for going out and, and exercising. That just gives you the, the different scenarios and different parts of the world that we are in. Now, I'm watching the K-League and it's been fantastic it's because the whole world is watching to see what they do right and what goes wrong. It, it's the whole world, every organisation in the world is watching. So they're kind of like the guinea pigs to get going again. And they've got similar rates when you compare 
the um, the death toll and the you know the population, and we put everything into context. We're on very similar levels, so whether we can go again in Australia with the A League um, remains to be seen. But with the Premier League and the world, the the European leagues, with the ratios and the number of deaths, the number of people that are contracting, it's still going to be very very tough, and it's going to be monitored and scrutinised like you would not believe, Dave. So they've got a big task on their hand. Can they get it up and running? That if they've got an opportunity, they'll be putting every bit of budget into that, the Premier League, to get it going because there is so much money at stake from TV, from sponsors. And, you know, they want to get it finalised and get it done. And uh, there's a lot of players that are against this. Danny Rose came out and spoke very openly about it, saying, I mean, he's, he's in quite a bit of backlash. And, you know, he used to play for Tottenham. He was always in the media. Um what am I trying to say, spotlight for some of the comments he yeah. made. He's gone to Newcastle United now and he's come out and said that, you know, he thinks it's a disgrace. He won't be wanting to be involved. There's other players that will be saying that they don't want to play because they will have family members that they could possibly spread it on to who are vulnerable. And I think that's where the club have got to take in consideration. If some players don't want to do that, then they don't. They, they can't be held accountable. That is their decision. Uh, and I'm hoping that it will get going, David. But uh, again, the guidelines and the restrictions that we are seeing being put in place. And again, three Brighton players recently just gone down with COVID. So I'd, it's going to be a trial and error basis. I'm hoping they can get it done. Uh, but it's, it's very, very unlikely, I can see, because of the, the numbers that I'm still hearing about. Mm. Rob, one of the sticking points has been the, um, the, the, the option of neutral venues versus particularly the bottom six clubs wanting to play back at their home venues for obvious reasons. And the bottom six clubs have been huge contrarian voices, for, again, for obvious reasons uh, about why that, that they don't want to do that. How, how pivotal do you think that is in terms of the resumption of the season and, um, and being a sticking point between it going ahead and not? Well, I think the neutral venues shouldn't really come into it uh, too much. If you're going to be playing in front of no crowds anyway, then... Um, you know, it shouldn't really matter. You don't really have that home ground advantage, so to speak, with the home support behind you. Um, I think if you can, you know, we here in Australia about all these hub ideas and, and obviously the country is a lot bigger, so it makes travel a lot more difficult across state lines. But if you could call to sort of centralise the league in a few locations, I think you can play it over a much quicker time period. Um, you could be playing one game after another, day after day, um, and sort of playing every two or three days with the squads that you have. But you mentioned there the Brighton players it's all well and good to get this up and running and off the ground and, and putting these restrictions in place. But as soon as one or two players from a couple of different clubs come down with, with COVID-19, I mean, what happens then? Uh, you're going to have to stop the league and it's probably all going to be for nothing. So, I mean, I, I really don't envy the people that have to make these tough decisions. And with all this money involved, you can understand why the, the clubs at the bottom of the table want to call the season off and, and not be relegated and all those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, and then you bring the championship into it as well. Who comes up? And it's just a, it's just a real mess. No one's ever been in this situation before. And as I say, you know, I don't have this, the solutions, but the health and safety of everyone, including the players and fans and, and public, is is what needs to be at the forefront. And, and that's the most important thing, regardless of how much money's involved. And and that's that's well said, Rob. Because you can, I mean, correct me if I am wrong here, but the the K League have. Like I was saying there, all eyes are on them and it's trial and error. Now, the K-League are only playing each other. They've, they've lessened their games against each other. Is that correct? They've shortened their the, the matches? Yeah, I mean, it was meant to be three times uh, usually that they play each other. Um, takes it to 33 games of the season. I believe they've cut it down to just the twice. Um, I'm not 100% on that. But, um, yeah, I mean, there were seasons there when I was there in the K-League. We played 46 games in a season. You'd play home and away three times. You'd split the league in half and then you'd play the top half and the bottom half home and away again. So um, they are used to playing a lot of games, cup competitions. I saw uh, on Twitter yesterday they had some uh, a draw for the FA Cup. Um, so I presume that's still going ahead. But um, yeah, I think you have to condense the seasons, don't you? But while they've got no cases, they, they may as well continue. Yeah, but what I was going to say off the, off the back of what you've said there and explained it, They've given themselves a window of opportunity because there's talk if the players or any staff members get it, the whole team have got to go into isolation for that 14-day period. Yep. So there might be a few weekends where we won't see some K-League teams playing. Can you imagine 
obviously taking that back into England and trying to get the games all done and we get one team isolating 14 days and we get two teams isolating yeah. 14 days with staff members and then we might not see games for two or three two or three weeks because they can't play each other due to this so it's again it's all trial and error and there's there's big decisions going to have to be made for the Premier League to get going and like you said then the knock-on effect becomes if you do finish that season and you have your title for all Liverpool fans who want that the relegation then becomes and done. It's not going to be null and void. Did the championship go ahead? It's it, and they don't want to. The less the lower clubs haven't got the financial stability. I don't think and the money that they would have to try and, and get is going to have to come from the Premier League finishing to secure the bottom two divisions in England. Um, otherwise, there's going to be so many teams just going to oblivion. Yeah, that's right. They're talking about something like 340. Um, I think it's billion dollars, uh, no million dollars that'll that'll uh, be the black hole from the television revenue if the season doesn't finish. But to end off on this, Bridgie, I mean, it, 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 as I said, we've been talking about this for months. Still a huge headache. But the Premier League have said for the first time they might have to look at and have discussions about what they do if they don't finish. Is it points per game? Is it as you were? Is it finish it after everyone had played each other once? Is it finish it after everyone had played an equal amount of games? They're, they're the conversations that are starting to happen for the first time. The FA came over the top and said, we will not sanction voiding the season. So they're, they're saying there's going to be relegation regardless. Yeah. But then, as you said, what happens if the championship doesn't start? As, as you were, Leeds and West Brom are in those positions. And the overnight developments are the Premier League clubs, surprise, surprise, are saying, well, if we have to play our full quota, but you don't, you shouldn't get promoted. Yeah. What do you think about that? The Premier League need to get their season finished for so many different avenues, Dave, because there's legal. There's only going to be one winner out of this. That's going to be all the lawyers. We've said that before. They are just sitting, waiting like vultures for the prey to be able to come in and swoop and say, well, if you do it off this amount of games, well, this team should have gone down, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's a logistical nightmare. The Premier League are concerned about the Premier League to finish that, get the games in, get it done and dusted. And like you say, they've kind of given it one of them and said, right, OK, we'll get rid of the relegated teams. But the Football League now, it's up to you to decide what you do if you want to do the promotion and relegation and finish it off. If it's not finished, they may say that it is null and void in the Championship. The way I look at it, I'm going to take my Leeds United hat off now, Dave, and put it to the side because I want to see them get promoted. If they do want to do it like that and they can't finish games, there's only one way they can do our feel, and that is to let the playoff system happen as it stands. The top two would go up and then have a playoff system where it would consist of three matches. It would be 3v6, it would be 4v5, and the winners play a final. Um, that's three games. And if the Premier League can get all their 92 games done, I'm sure that the EFL can manage to put three games on if that's how they would like to do it. Uh, and that's the only way I can see it happening in the lower divisions because of the they haven't got the money and the capability to keep all the tests and everything going in the, in the travel. So that would be my solution. If it doesn't happen, then you, you do just have to, unfortunately, null and void it and play the following season and give six teams a promotion at back of the Premier League to get their numbers up. <laughs> Excuse me. Got it a little lumpy throat there. <laughs> Talking about Leeds United, he's getting emotional yeah. now. I know, getting all emotional. <laughs> yeah, it is a headache. It is a headache. And I truly do not know how the next month is going to play out. But we'll see with bated breath. Let's talk about some football, gents. And uh, for anyone listening, we can see each other. And, well, I've stuck myself in the Seoul World Cup stadium with my virtual Zoom background uh, <laughs> because I can't put on a, a former jersey of my playing days. I've just got a crappy old jumper on. So this is the best I can do. But, Robbie, tell us about the jersey you're wearing right now to kick us off with our uh, little insight into a new competition that hopefully we're all going to fall in love with over the next couple of weeks and months. Yeah, so I'm wearing the old John Num Dragons jersey. I think this is from 2012, this one. It's the away strip. So black. I've gone the long sleeves today because it's pretty cold outside. So I thought I'd better stay warm. But uh, unfortunately... Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm sure we could search the archives and see a few of you in a long sleeve. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, John Number no longer in the K-League, relegated two seasons ago. So they're down in, in the K2. But, um, you know, obviously with uh, Twitter and, and all the highlights packages they're putting out there, we're able to watch their games as well. They had a nil-all draw on the weekend. But um, plenty of Aussies have played there as well after me. Um, Nick Ansel uh, went there. Uh, Tommy Merschler was there. Uh, Matt Simon um, and uh, James Donaghy as well. So 
a few A-League players have, have been through the, the club over the last decade or so. Very, very small team. Um, sister club of uh, the Pohang Steelers, so the same owner. They've got two teams in the one league. Um, and obviously, Pohang's the big, the big team, and uh, we were sort of the, the smaller little brother. Question, how is that allowed? Yeah, it's a very good question, that one. Um, yeah, I don't know. When you've got enough money, I suppose, you're allowed to uh, You have a couple of sides. One, one city's got the world's biggest steel factory and the other city's got the second biggest steel factory. So um, plenty of uh, industry going on. Basically, I lived in a small town called Guanyang and uh, the whole city just existed because of the steel factory. So I'm sure they just put a football team there to give, uh, give the locals something to do and something to go and watch. Yeah, nice. And tell us, um, we heard Sasha Ognowski in the lead-up to the K-League give us his impressions of the competition. Um, what is it that you think we're all going to um, fall in love with and watch week to week that makes it stand out? Oh, I think it's just a, a really physical end-to-end league. I mean, the players have got tremendous fitness. I was speaking to Craig Duncan, uh, the former Socceroos uh, fitness coach, and he basically said he thinks uh, Korean players are the fittest players in the world. They can run literally all day and having done uh, a large number of pre-seasons there, you can, I can tell you the amount of work that they put in, not just that what the coach puts on, um, they, they're just doing extras on top of extras and, and just their stature, their legs are just so solid and they're just such strong boys that it just enables them to run all day. And, um, you know, we saw from the game on Sunday, uh, three late goals from Gangwon. And, and that's what you see in the K-League, especially during the hotter months of summer when it's really, really hot. You're going to see two or three goals after the 80-minute mark because players are just uh, exhausted in that, in that heat. And uh, although the game on Friday maybe as a spectacle wasn't uh, goal-to-goal action and, and end-to-end stuff and, and plenty of sh- strikes and keepers saving... I thought one of the things that really shone was the technical ability of the players, the, the ability to receive the ball in tight space and, and to be able to keep it, protect it, take that touch away from traffic. Um, that's something I really enjoyed watching and I think it's something that's probably a cut above uh, the A-League. Now you talk about the, the fitness and the, the mental attitude of the players. Do they all have to do military service in, in their country? Is that correct? Yeah, so between the ages, I think it's 20 and 28, you have to do two years or 18 months, roughly, I think it is, uh, of military service. And um, there was two teams. Uh, there's Sungju, who's in the, in the top flight, who's the Army military team. And basically, while you're doing your service, you still get to play in the K-League. And there's been guys that have been in the military team and, and gone and played for career at the World Cup. So yeah. just because you're in the military team doesn't mean you're not a good player. Everyone has to go and do that. Um, and we've heard before, the only way to be exempt from that is to win a, a gold medal at the Asian Games or a medal at the Olympics. So when they go to the Olympic Games, uh, in particular in London, uh, South Korea beat Japan for the bronze medal, all those players were exempt from the military. So it's a huge reward for them. I'll tell you what, there's and no think- more of an incentive needed. <laughs> you can get rid of all your bonus money and everything. Yeah. If somebody's saying you've got to go in and do military service, mate, I am winning that competition. <laughs> <laughs> the big thing is, though, you go from your salary, your club salary, which might be, you know, two, dollars $300,000 US a, a, a year, and you go to the military, you don't get that money anymore. You yeah, go on like- to a, a normal civilian's military uh, wage. I don't know what that is. Uh, I think it was a couple of hundred dollars a, a week or something along those lines. So it, financially, it's a huge sacrifice as well. And um, oh, I think they'll survive, Rob. I don't think yeah. they'll be. Um, I don't think they'll struggle. Yeah, but you can see why now it's so important for players that go to Europe to be exempt. Obviously, Son at Tottenham well, as well. Um, that's the reason I ask because I'm a Spurs fan. I know that Son has just done something for his country on military service while the COVID was on to get his yeah. out of the way because it's always been hanging over him. So Son, Son won an Asian Games medal. Um, so he's exempt from the two years. And he just needs to do like a four-week sort of training camp, yeah. just a, a sort of a, a refresher or an introduction, I think that is. And um, yeah, he's, he's done that now. So he's free to go and play uh, for the rest of the, the Premier League season, whenever that is. Well, Gary Van Egmont tried it with the Newcastle Jets about four, four, five, six years ago. He took us to Liverpool Army Barracks. Yeah. Uh, and we played a pre-season game the night before. We thought we were all travelling home back to our families. We pulled over in Liverpool Barracks. <laughs> And I'll never forget Emil Heskey's face and Zenon Caravella when these two army guys jumped on the bus and demanded we take all of our jewellery off and hand us hand in our tel- like mobile phones. And we're like, what is going on here? And he said, I've got you boys for 48 hours. It's going to be the worst 48 hours of your life. And the shell shock that went through, because Zenon Caravella must speak to his wife, I reckon, cats at least 20 times a day. 
And if that phone doesn't <laughs> ring and Zenon doesn't answer, he's in yeah. trouble. Oh, and it was so funny to see this guy say, well, how am I going to get in touch with me, my wife? And he was like, your wife, mate, you're going to, you might not see her again when I'm finished with you. And it was just yeah. the worst 48 hours of pre-season I have ever endured, getting woken up in the middle of the night, gas masks on, getting hosed down. They were shooting fake pellets at us and things like that. It was incredible. And I remember speaking to the guys after we had a barbecue with them once we finally got through it. Um, there was only two of the lads didn't manage to get through the through the, the training camp. Um, one one walked out and one passed out, sadly. Um, but at, at the end of it, it was incredible to talk to the guys to say, listen, you've just got a taste of what it is like when you come in. That was nothing. And well, let's I, said, mate, say, I admire you guys so much for what you do. Let's just say a normal K-League pre-season at any club is probably about one level below that without the pellets. Oh, that. <laughs> How was the adjustment, Rob? But what can you give us a taste of what that? I mean, you you mentioned at the end of your last answer that it's probably a cut above the A League in, in that sense. Is it the level of the training that you found when you went over there um, that was as well, and that made the league translate to sort of uh, you found another level for you adjusting to? Can you tell us about that aspect of it? Yeah, there's a number of different sort of things that play into it. Initially, when I went there, I didn't think I was good enough. I know I wasn't going to ever pass up the opportunity, but I thought, oh, geez, I'm going to be up against it here. Um, go over there, obviously do my absolute best and, and just see where it takes me. But um, yeah, you know, like in a pre-season in the A-League, you might do a couple of double sessions in a week if you're lucky for the first sort of few weeks. I mean, there was a solid month of Monday, Tuesday was twice. Wednesday was a game. Thursday, Friday was twice. Saturday was a game. And then Sunday you had off if you were lucky. Um, so for me to go there, um, we just finished the A-League season when I, got, when I got there. So thankfully I had some level of fitness, but it, w it was nowhere near uh, where I needed to be. And it probably took me a month to get where I needed to be. And I didn't play the first month. I got there the day before the opening game of the season. So I got there really late. And it probably took me a solid month of training before I actually got a, an opportunity to play. And um, yeah, as I say, the, the fitness levels are, are outrageous. And while you're doing those two double sessions a day, I kid you not, there's 45 players usually in the squad. At least half of them would be up at 6 a.m. doing gym on their own, off their own bat, no questions asked. That's just what they were sort of uh, instilled in them growing up. And I just don't think you see that in Australia. I think a lot of players in Australia go there and get injured. Um, one, because they're not strong enough. They haven't got the Ks in the legs. They haven't built up that strength over many, many years. Um, and, I mean, it sounds funny, but I think the, the, the best thing that sort of didn't happen to me, but the best thing about my, the way I am as a player is I'm not that quick and I'm not that strong. So when I was really tired... I didn't have that power to go and tear a hamstring where some of these guys that are lightning quick, as soon as you get fatigued, you get injured. Um, unfortunately, Matt Simon went over there. He was injured for, a, he got osteitis pubis. He was pretty much 18 months, didn't kick a ball. Uh, he had a bit of a terrible time. Luke Devere had knee injuries. Um, uh, uh, Nathan Burns had quite bad knee injuries as well. And it's just the amount of um, loading that you have on your body. There's very little sports science. They think GPSs are for the military, so they don't put any sort of data into their training. And it's um, it can be a little bit old school at times, but um, you know, thankfully for me, I was able to able to get through it all. So just what you've said there, Rob, with the, the the conditioning. If you remember when Klopp went into Liverpool, we're talking about Premier League football here. When Klopp went into Liverpool for that first initial month to two months, the players were dropping like flies. He had nine and ten injuries in the first two months because, like you say, the train loads go from what they are used to and Klopp was demanding it to be up here, whether that was double sessions or just different intervals, sprinting work. Uh, and it took the players at least a season and a half to get used to that pre-season, thinking, oh, here we go with Klopp. But then it becomes the norm. Yeah. So it's, you know, you've, like you say, if you're underdone and you're going into that kind of environment, it can be very, very dangerous if you haven't got that foundation and base. And I, I do think that there's a lot of clubs in the A-League kind of learn a lot from the Kaylee because I, I, I love watching and hearing about Popovich's training. Yeah. And well, Pop, I, you know, I, that, that's, that's tough yaka. But at the yeah, end well, of the day, I mean, I was, yeah. I was at the Wanderers, sorry to interrupt, with, with Popper. And I must say, like, in terms of the loading and everything like that, it was probably very similar. I think the way that Popper did things was, was a hell of a lot smarter. Um, you did a lot of things with the ball. You Maybe you did some really, really high-intensity stuff for a short period of time where there it could, it could drag on for, for a lot longer. But... 
obviously at the Wanderers when I was there, the sports science data and everything else that was involved. That was probably the fittest I'd ever been, despite... Now, did you have Adam Watson then? No, we had uh, Scotty Smith, and it was overseen right. oh, by, yeah, yeah. by, yeah, by Craig. Oh, yeah, yeah. Scotty had a youth team at the Jets, Yeah, yes. with Craig Duncan was uh, overseeing the program, and Scotty's gone out on his own now. He's the, the fitness coach at Perth Glory. He's gone across with Popper, and um, yeah, that's, that's the fittest I've ever been. Um, that was probably working a lot smarter, um, and in the K-League, it was just a hell of a lot more. What I, I still think a lot of coaches can learn that kind of environment because I, I can't stand it when I hear uh, the coaching stuff when you're doing stuff for the fitness guys and all. It's all about the recovery and the need they need as much rest as they can to get ready for the next game. Well, the game's not on next Saturday. It's not yeah. like we're playing like a month, uh, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. And it really, it's one of the big issues for me being in this country, how the games that are, have got the seven-day window between or the six-day window, how oh, it's all about the rest and recovery. I'm saying no, because if you if you drive the players to a certain level, like Popovich does, and like you talk about the Kaylee, the players will adapt, and they'll adapt down quickly because they'll fall behind or they'll get injured, and uh, and that's the thing. And you can't you can't discredit what Popper's done at the Wanderers um, at all, or what he's done at Perth. So I, I I totally agree with what you said on the fitness. It's interesting, Rob. You mentioned some of the guys that did it tough there, because for every story like yours of players going to Asia, there probably is someone who did find it tough or did. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have a, does have a, whether it's a horror story or has some really interesting insight of the other side of, of maybe the cultural disconnect. Um, what was it for you that made it such a, when you look back, such a rewarding experience that arguably, you know, kicked your career on to even bigger heights? Yeah, I just think the fact that it was so tough. I mean, I said before that when I went there, maybe I thought that I wasn't good enough. I probably had a lot of doubts about myself as a player up until that point. Anything that I read that was negative, I sort of questioned, you know, maybe I'm not that good. But when I went there and I made a rapid improvement, I got stronger and I wasn't just playing. I was, I was you know, people were talking about me as, oh, wow, this is one of the best foreign defenders to come in this season. And um, you know, I, I signed for two years initially. Towards the back end of my first year, they offered me a, a new three-year deal. So automatically, I just felt, you know what, I, I belong here now. I know that I'm a good player. I've got a lot of belief in, in what I can do. And, um, you know, as you say, eventually that l- led to some opportunities with the Socceroos. And, um, yeah, it was just I had this confidence that I probably didn't have before. And thankfully, thank, uh, sorry, thankfully for me, I, I scored a few goals. I had a knack of scoring. And in Asia, if you're a, a defender that can score, the fans just love you. Every time there's a corner and you go up, there's this excitement that you're going to get your head on the end of something. And um, yeah, I just sort of got this notoriety. And then with my celebration as well, I just it all just swelled. And um, I just had a really great feeling. I was young. I was um, living in a a country that just offered so much in terms of uh, cultural experiences, um, the language, the food, and I just sort of embraced it all. I, I wrote a survival guide to Asia many, many years ago now, maybe two or three years ago. And I said to, in that was basically just live like a local, become a local, hang out with the locals because I saw so many foreigners that came there and they pushed back against all those things. They didn't want to learn to use chopsticks. They didn't want to learn to speak Korean. They, they wouldn't eat at a Korean restaurant. You'd have to cook them their own special meal. Uh, and they just didn't last. They were all there for minimum six months. Next window, they were gone because they're just, they're just too high maintenance and, and a bit too precious. Um, and I just sort of became part of the furniture. And, you know, I just, yeah, I was almost like one of the, one of the local boys. You, you embrace the opportunity. That's, that's the, the whole key to it. If, you, if you're going into a job, it doesn't matter whether it's sport or business. If you don't, don't embrace and enjoy what you do and learn the culture and the values of what, where you are in the region, you, you've got to, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I did the same from Newcastle, England to Newcastle, Australia. 
I know we speak the same language and the, you know, yeah. the food, very, very similar things. But again, I felt so at home because I embraced the area. It was the working class. It was the blue collar from where I'm from as well. Uh, and that's why I like going to Sydney and I enjoy getting in there, getting my fix like I would in London and then getting out of there. But it's like you, you say with a cultural thing, whenever we go on holidays as a family, whether it's to Malaysia or over to Hong Kong, I always try to embrace and do that. And I, I agree with you. That. So did you actually do, did you do the book on that? Did you? Or what was no, that? I just wrote an article uh, about it, just giving a few tips on and, and what to do. And, you know, you're not going to, the K-League, you do have the best of everything. You've got 24-hour chefs and physios and all the players live together and all the, from 10 years old all the way to the first team, they all live together. They go to school and it's just this one big hotel. Um, and yeah, like you say, I just embraced that, became became part of the furniture. And I think because I'm from Adelaide, well, I was born in England, but I'm from Adelaide. It's a smaller city. When I went to Guanyang, there was only about 150,000 people there. And people think of Korea as like, you know, Seoul, 20, 30 million people, I think 50 million people in the whole country. But I was going to restaurants regularly. I was getting to know the owner. I was going to the cafes and they knew who I was. And and you get that real rapport with the people that live there. And then you try to speak Korean, you you mess it up and they have a laugh at you. And then, and then you just sort of get to build these relationships. And for me, that's what made it so special. Now, the last question before, I, before Dave interrupts, did you get their meals when you got to know the owners? Did you go there because you were getting the meal for free? <laughs> there, was actually a, there was actually a, uh, a, a restaurant, a Brigolgi restaurant. That's like the meat that you cook yourself on the barbecue. Uh, and oh, the yeah. owner was an mm. ex-professional ballet dancer, a man. He went to America and it became, he became such a good friend of mine that every time I went there, he would literally just sit there and just cook for me. Um, so I didn't <laughs> get it for free, but I basically had my own private chef. I wouldn't have to cook the Brigolgi myself. <laughs> <laughs> Different class. Well, I was going to ask you what, what the biggest thing you had to adjust to was, the biggest culture shock was, but it sounds like... Uh, Sounds like a few things went very nicely for you though as well. But what was the biggest adjustment you had to make or the, the thing that surprised you the most that you had to go, all right, I've got to, I, I do have to. Toilets. No. Be toilets. <laughs> no, no, the toilets there are fine, mate. The, the, um, oh, it's not holes in the floor, is it not? No, that's Malaysia. That's Malaysia. Oh, mate, that's one thing that I can never get used to, man. I've, I've got to have sail off the back of the door with a I'm bit six, of roll. I'm six foot five, mate. How do you think I go getting down there? <laughs> no, you <laughs> may. I've had 13 operations and them knees do not do what they need to do yeah. for them toilets. I told um, you, Rob, this could go anyway. I know. Dave, that, that, I'm glad you asked that question because um, the, the toughest thing wasn't from a cultural perspective. It was the fact that I was an import player in a league where you can only have four or five imports. I think we forget about the fact that, um, you know, in Europe, there's foreign players it's scattered throughout every side. There's usually, you know, the, often the whole side's made up of foreign players. But in Asia, you are one of five. And if you're the Aussie, you're one of one, basically, because you're coming in as the Asian quota. The day I got there, the coach said, come out for dinner with the other foreign players. They'd already been there for a few weeks and we'll get to know each other and whatever. And I thought, yep, no worries. He couldn't speak English. And sometimes through a translator, the English can come across as very blunt. It's not really dressed up. And it was, I was under no illusions from that first day how much pressure was on the foreigners to perform and basically win games. And it was the same in Malaysia. The day I arrived, there was pictures and articles in the newspaper saying like, why have they signed this guy? I hadn't even had a training session yet. And that you are expected to go there and be the difference. And he, you know, to go to a country where I didn't know the language, I, I did not know one single person. It wasn't a, a friend I could call. And to go to dinner with the coach and, you know, sometimes you think the coach is going to put your arm, their arm around you and say, oh, welcome, you know, we so. And he basically said, you're here to lead the defence. You're here to make sure we've got the best defensive record in the league. And that's what I expect from you. And that was basically it. And I just thought, holy shit, like I'm going to I'm gonna have to produce or I'm not going to be here very long. And, and it's that pressure um, that's something that Aussie players don't really think about when they leave to go to, to Asia. And I don't think the foreigners in Australia get the same scrutiny as what uh, foreigners in Asia get. So one of the Aussie boys that are there now in four, obviously we saw Terry Antonis get sent off in the first game. Adam Taggart has risen to the occasion in his yep. first season and, and looks like he's up for a big season coming up. Brandon O'Neill uh, was on the bench for Paul Hang Steelers in the first game. Jason Davidson was involved in a good win. He had a great game. Yeah. yeah. And yep. Rashid Mahazi is involved as well. Um, what's your forecast for them or advice to them? Because you're one of the guys that has come through with uh, flying colours from this competition. Uh, well, I think 
of those names, I'm just trying to think which one. Uh, Brandon's probably the only one that's gone there this season. The others all were there last season. Uh, Terry and I think Mahazi went halfway through the season. So they sort of know what it's about now. Um, I think Jason Davidson didn't probably play that much when he went from Perth. Um, obviously, they were on a great run and they were they, they should have won the championship. They threw it away in the, on the final game of the season. But um, obviously, Tags just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, it was a tough first game for him. I thought Sue Wan actually did okay. Mm-hmm. To go to the champions, I think they've won, what, eight titles in the last 10, 10 years or something ridiculous like that. To go there and, and to be honest, they probably should have got a point. Terry is probably in a little bit of hot water with what he's done because, as I said, they could be quite blunt, be quite direct, and and foreign players are expected to be the best and the example. For him to do that when they were in a position to maybe go there and get a point against the champions, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would have given him the cold shoulder after the game. They're not the type of people to put their arm around him and say, well done. So he's going to be out in the cold for a little bit now. He's going to miss a game or two. I'm not sure what sort of suspension he, he got. Uh, and he might struggle to get himself back in that first 11 for, for a little while. Um, as for Brandon O'Neill, I know he's got some personal issues off the field. He's, his father's not well. Um, and with the coronavirus stuff, I don't want to sit here and say, oh, he's not in the first 11. I don't know what he's been doing because it's not unfamiliar for foreigners to be on the bench in, in, in the K-League, in Japan as well. You've got to imagine the level of local talent is, is very, very high. And I think when you're a player that's of the same mold, it's very, very, it's a lot tougher because, you know, Brandon's small, he's strong, he's got good technical ability and good passing. Like, to me, that's describing basically a Korean midfielder. Um, so he needs to offer something in terms of leadership, tough tackling, um, and just stay positive. I mean, it's one game. Of course, you want to play. The games are on TV in Australia. You're getting excited. Everyone's going to be able to watch you and you're not in the, not in the, uh, in the 11 and you didn't come on. Uh, but he's got plenty of time and uh, he's a good enough player to make his mark in that league, I think, as well. Well, you, you said that with John, the players there, the Asians. I was looking at um, John Book's team and I was looking forward to seeing um, Lars Van Vyk, the South African striker that's coming. And he, he was nowhere to be seen. He wasn't even on the bench. And there was the other guy we were chatting about earlier on, coming more to the Japanese yeah, import yeah, for them as well. Right. He was on the bench and he came on and made a great impact. Is that because, Rob, that... Like you said, is that the standard? Is that because it was so early on this season they haven't been able to get in the levels of fitness that the coaches and that would be demanding? Well, that's a good point. I mean, the, the fact that they haven't been training uh, as a group for, for a long period, I'm sure some of the fitness has dropped off. And having mentioned already the mentality of the Korean players and how fit they are, if I was a Korean manager, I'd be thinking, all right, I'm going to go to the guys that are super, super fit and super prepared. Um, that's not to say that the others aren't. Um, as for John Book, I mean, They've got uh, arguably the strongest squad in the league. Um, usually their budget's twice as much as, as anyone else's. And uh, for a foreigner to be on the bench there, again, is, is uh, it's no surprise. It's, it's, it's a familiar thing that you would see if you look across their team over the years. Um, and I thought when the Japanese lad came on, he made a huge difference. Um, plenty of energy in the midfield. And, and not to say that he changed the game, but he certainly had an impact. And, um, you know, his potential to get a run next week. You mentioned the tough love that Terry Antonis might get. Did, what was the type of uh, tough love you saw from the Inner Sanctum during your time or, or that maybe was dished out to you or that you saw one of your teammates get during your time? That, I'm not saying Terry's going to be in for it, but um, just to shed light on, on, on where that perspective might be, might be from. Yeah, listen, I mean, the, the K-League, we mentioned the, the, the military and it is sort of a... a a military type uh, sort of discipline um, and sort of that respect thing that you get in Asia as well. When someone that's older than you tells you to do something, you do it. I mean, we used to eat lunch and dinner together every single day. And literally if I'm 29 and you're 28 and I say to you, Hey, can you go get me a drink? You go get me a drink. And it's not done in a way that you're my slave. It's done in a way that's respectful. And uh, it's no you're issue. Your, you're earning your stripes. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's not an issue between players um, that something like that might happen. And if someone's really old and, you know, 38, 39 still playing and, and he says to a 20 year old, you, you know, come and clean my room or something like that. That happens and they don't have any issue with it. It's almost probably like, oh, he's asking me, awesome. And in return, they look after him. They might give him money when they need it or buy them boots or, or things like that. But, um, you know, there was a couple of times where maybe a player was a overly, openly disrespectful uh, to a coach. There was times where a player was given 
you know, in no uncertain terms, direct instructions what to do and not to do. And I've seen in a game where a player went on the field, uh, didn't do what he was asked whatsoever, led to a goal. And after the, 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 goal, uh, the game, sorry, we ended up drawing the game. We went into the change rooms um, and everyone sort of had a sense of what was going to happen. I didn't, obviously. I was sitting there thinking, oh, what's going on? Everyone was sort of had their heads bowed. And the coach called this, this player forward as a young player. And he basically just struck him across the face. Um, and it wasn't once. he and, and no one reacted. I reacted. I was going to jump up and go, what, what's going on? And I saw everyone else sort of just sit there um, and not react. And I thought, okay. So I sat there. And then the coach told the player to stand up and gave him another one. He probably ended up giving him about three or four. And, um, you know, that, that was probably the, the most confronting thing that I saw there. The player was fine with it. The next day, they were all roses. They were having a laugh. And and whatever, and it was basically a, a very stern, do what you're told. Wow. There you go, Bridgie. Fascinating. That's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I used to get that off Peter Reid like, back in the day. But um... <laughs> I mean, I've seen older players as well clip, clip, clip younger players around the ear. Um, you, know, you know, maybe they, get, they nutmeg them or something on the training ground. And, and, you know, that's all fun and games. And then they, maybe they say something that's a little bit out of turn. Um, and I'll just give them a... Uh, give them a good whack and then puts them back in a line pretty quickly. Tough love, they call it. Hey, as we, as we finish off, um, I saw you, you you mentioned on the weekend that Lee Dong-Guk um, gave you nightmares during your career. Just just seven titles for him, four MVPs, just a casual 224 goals. <laughs> um, what was the biggest challenge as a defender there? Um, and can you tell us about um, you know some of the some of the um, memories you have playing against players like him, still going, some of them, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. But who were the best type of players you played against? What did you learn as a defender playing in the K-League? Oh, you just had to be versatile, I suppose. I mean, um, the, the toughest thing for me was probably when I came up against someone with similar attributes as me, because then it was a real even sort of 50-50 battle. You know, like as a defender, you've got to be smart. If someone's lightning quick, I'm not going to go and sort of press him and, and let him knock it past me and run. I'm going to sit off and, and, and sort of deal with him that way. But Kim Chinook, who's played for the Korean national team maybe 50 times, um, 200 centimetres tall, probably 10 kilos heavier than me, um, played for Ulsan, scored over 100 goals, went to John Book as well. Um, now he's in China, I think, scoring goals there as well. He, it's just, you know, everything that's my strength was his strength as well. Um, so that was a real battle and he was very clever, very good with his feet. And what I found the most difficult thing was when the ball was kicked long, usually with a tall player, you're both just competing for the, for the header. You're going to jump and you're both trying to win it. But he was just so smart that if he could tell that I was going to run and jump, I mean, Bridgie might've done the same as a player. He would just protect the space, basically let the ball drop into in front of him and bring it down. So then the next time I think, okay, I'm not going to jump. I'm going to do that. And he just jump and flick it on. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't get a, a bearing of what he was going to do. And um, thankfully, he didn't score all that many against me. But from set pieces and all that, you're under pressure just to make sure this guy doesn't score every time. Robbie, you're the tallest. You go and pick him up and you're just thinking, oh, God, I hope, this, hope they don't whip this ball right onto his head or else I'm in trouble. But yeah, he was, he was one of the more difficult ones. Nice. And, and I remember learning a lot from Alan Shearer back in the day. At the master of being able to put you guys off the centre half. So I was, I used to love dropping off short to get the ball so I could turn and face you up. If it was a bit of an aerial battle, Rob, I'm not being funny. I would do the old turtleneck and think, oh, I don't get hit here. And it was, it was great. I used to say to Alan, how do you judge the flight of the ball and get them flick-ons and beat the defenders? And and he used to say, well, I'd watch the ball. I'd see the flight of the ball. I'd look at the defender. I'd give them a little bit of a dig in the elbow, with the elbow into their midriff or I'd stand on their toes beforehand just to completely put them off that millisecond before I could get my run and jump or do something against them. So it was little smart things that he taught me in the game. And, and like you were saying, he played massive mind games with the centre-halves. No, no wonder he, he had such a good career. I tried it against um, Martin Keown. I thought I'll just stand on his toes here. And I got a big clip on the jaw from behind him and he just went, don't do that again, young man. And I was like, oh. So it didn't, didn't work quite for me. Uh, the other player that was very, very good at sort of in a similar mould who was protecting the space and, and, and I didn't know whether to jump or to, or to stay down was actually Johnny Aloisi. When he played in the A-League, 
you know, I'm taller than Johnny. He's stronger than me, obviously. But whenever the ball was in the air, he knew if I was going to jump, he'd back into me, protect the space and bring it down. And then if I stayed down, he'd just flick it on. And it was just, it was a really, really difficult thing to deal with when you've got a player um, like that who's very, very smart in those situations. Well, what we'll do, Dave, we'll cut that segment out on Johnny Aloisi, but he's won the <laughs> trivia for the last two weeks. So his head is that big already, so he doesn't need any more info on how good Johnny Aloisi is. Uh, a couple of other players that come to mind in the K-League were, um, Sol were really, really good at that time. And Dayan Damjanovic, who guys who watch the Asian Champions League, he's played against A-League sides many times. He scored over 100 goals for Sol as well. But during that time, he had another player with him called Molina, a Colombian. And their combination was just ridiculous. I mean, Molina was a, a sort of a deep-lying striker, left-footer. Um, and you know those players where you know exactly what they're going to do. They want the ball on their left foot. He's going to chop. He's going to do this. And you just can't stop him. And them two in tandem, I mean, they scored nearly 200 goals between them in about 300 games. I mean, their sort of conversion rate and, and his free kicks, his set pieces, his left foot was just like a wand. And Every time we played against Seoul, those two in combinations, it was really, really tough. Rob, big moment for you, mate, before we... Well, I don't know what Dave's going to wrap up with, but I need your help here, mate. <laughs> okay. right? This is the big moment. Yep. Now, this is going to determine my season here. Okay. There's a guy for Optus Sport, Jake Rosengarten, right? Yes. He has done an unbelievable article on yes. Optus Sport app. It's the team-by-team -team guide to the K-League. Now, I'm in a bit of a dilemma here, mate, because there's no team that he has given any idea that reminds him of Leeds or Tottenham Hotspur, so basically teams <laughs> that are the almost nailies or come close. But I've got three that I want, I'm want. i going to give you, and I want okay. you to pick one for me, please. Okay. First one is Ulsan, yep. and it says that if you're a Liverpool fan, the narrative is very similar to the Reds in their quest for the title, missing out very closely. So get on board this team if you're in for the roller coaster ride. Then there is the other one is the Blue Wings, obviously, because of the Australian connections in the K-League with the two boys that are there. Suwong, 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 oi, 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 I do believe <laughs> is their chant. And the other one is the, which I really, really liked when I read, read it, where we at, was about the Pohang Steelers. Yep. And the reason, obviously, we've got Brandon O'Neill there, big fan of his. He's a big League United fan, uh, so he's, he's a mate of mine. If you love your historic clubs, Pohang was founded in an industrial team in, the, in 73 and they had the first purpose-built stadium in the country. So, I'm a, I like my history. I also yeah. want to um, go for the, for the Aussie team. And I know Ulsan, like I say, are the almost nearly. So, come on, give me the team, mate, please. Well, well if you want a team that's going to be competitive and, and have an opportunity to win the title, a genuine opportunity, it's Ulsan. But since you're a Tottenham supporter... The other two, Pohung. I spoke about Pohung before. They were the sister club of, of the Chonnam Dragons. You've got Brandon O'Neill there. They've got a striker, uh, Iljusenko, I think his name is, from Germany. Looked outstanding on the weekend. Scored a, scored a header. Uh, had another couple of headers go close. I really like Pohung, if I'm honest. Historically, they've, they've won a few titles back in the early 2000s. Um, you know, a very, very strong side. I had an opportunity, actually, to go there. Um, in about 2007, 2008, when I was quite young. I turned them down to stay in Australia. I didn't think I was quite ready to go overseas. But, Bridget, I reckon that might be the side for you. And I think they're going to be a, a really, really dangerous side this year. Only lost one of their last 10 last season. There you go. That's why I asked the expert. Thank you very much, my <laughs> friend. I look forward to it. Jake will be delighted with that shout-out, Bridget. And I was just delighted that, as much as I like uh, writing articles, that that one which took Jake... Pretty much all day to write that I got to read it and not write it. So that, yeah. that, was, that, was, that was very, very good. Rob, on that note, um, you've talked about who you've enjoyed playing in the past, who we should support, who should we expect to win or contend, knock Jong Book off if that's possible, and who are you most looking forward to see live bobbing up on, on our screens over the next couple of months? Oh, listen, I mean, for me, the obvious title contender to challenge Jong Book is, is Ulsan. Uh, the last two seasons, they've gone so, so close. As we mentioned, they should have won it last year. They threw it away on the final day of the season against Pohang, I think it was. Um, and if you look at the, the first round performances over the weekend, for me, they, along with Pohang, they were probably the most impressive side. I mean, the, the goal that they scored, the first one, they played, it was like watching uh, Brisbane Raw when Ange Postacoglu was in charge. They passed it out from the, the six-yard box 
Uh, Jason Davidson was involved. They, they strung together maybe about 18, 19 passes, went all the way the other end and scored. Uh, absolutely dominant. They did play Sungju, who were predicted to sort of be mid to upper table, but they looked really poor. Um, they made light work of them. So they're, they're obviously the one. And, and as, as I said, I think Pohong have, have got a chance this year. This Iljasenko that I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, uh, nine goals in 18 games when he came in mid-season. Uh, and he just looks a real, real smart player. And as I said, those are the type of players that you find it really difficult to get look strong in the air. Um, and and Pohanga got another player, Palacios, who's like the fastest player in the league. Uh, he's going to be getting up and down. He's going to be getting plenty of opportunities to score Iljusenko. And I think Pohang could be a, another dark horse to do well. And Spurs had a Palios player for them. So that is the icing on the cake. That is all I need to know. <laughs> Don't feel Pohang Steelers gone. Get in. Well, guys, thanks very much for your time today. Um, I can ask you for your prediction, Bridgie, but I, I, I'm putting you on the spot there because you've, you've just seen the two games. Uh-huh. Well, no, nah, to be fair, I think um, when you look at John Book, how, how good and strong they have been over, over the years um, in that competition, it, it's a no-brainer. But Ulsan will go close again. They'll push them. Um, but no, Paul Hang Steelers all the way. That is, it's just going to be total domination. <laughs> Love your work. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. It was really great to catch up and hear your thoughts from your, your time in the K-League and uh, look forward to, to hearing them throughout the season. And, and, and we've got a lot to enjoy over the next uh, couple of months on Off The Sport, that's for sure. My pleasure, boys. Thank you very much for having me. Keep up the good work and hopefully we can see some, uh, some Premier League and some other football back on our screen soon. <laughs> and Bridgie, go play well today on the course. And we'll hey, I, 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 I'm, play, I'm playing as well, don't forget today. Nice to, nice to get out on the course. Me and Rob had a little bit of a chat. He's got me. He's off 10. He's got a handicap of 10. I'm off 11. I think he's been getting a little bit more practice in than me. But, you know, it's just nice to get on the course. Um, the, I know the people in Victoria are looking forward to it so much to get back out there. England have just announced that they are allowed to play golf again um, this week. So they are absolutely delighted. And, and again, it's social distancing. It's exercise. And, and we're getting outdoors. And as long as we're keeping the rules and regulations and we abide by them, it's good for everybody in the long run. So um, enjoy your game today, Rob. Thank you Thanks, so mate. much for joining us and giving you a wealth of information and knowledge, mate. Um, I really appreciate your time. And Dave Wiener, see you during the week, my friend. Thank you once again. And I'm going to go and get a couple of hole-in-ones. Bye-bye. <laughs> Very nice. We'll do it all again soon. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Bridget. To everyone out there, as ever, hope you enjoyed that episode of The Gag and Pod. And until next time, stay safe, keep well. And I can now say again, enjoy your football. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.